Good morning, uh, this is Marlene Tadros, and my guest today is Dr. Amra Hamzawi. Dr. Hamzawi is a political science who taught in Cairo, Egypt, and Berlin, Germany, and currently teaches political science at Stanford University in California. Dr. Hamzawi was also a member of the Egyptian parliament in 2012, and he became a founding member of the Egyptian National Democratic Party and split from it and founded the Freedom Egypt Party. He is also the author of many books and articles on Egypt and the Middle East. Uh, welcome, Dr. Hamzawi. Thank you so much, Marlene. It's a pleasure to join you. So since this is the English version, uh, we'll go over a few of the things that we uh, went over in the Arabic version. Mm -hmm. Uh, one of the first things that we talked about uh, is how much you did not like the word exile, right. the name of my podcast. So can you explain? Sure. Well, well it's, not, it's, not, it's not me not liking you using it in your uh, podcast's title. It's me not liking it in reference to myself. So um, in, a, in, a, in a way, um, the word exile conveys uh, distance um, between the subject and the home, which I continue to refuse to accept. Secondly, the word exile suggests not only distance uh, geographically, but also distance in the sense of a longer time period. The exiled will be looking at her beloved home from afar, which I'm hoping that it will not be my fate. Thirdly, which is very personal, I guess it takes me back to um, some of our um, Arabic and uh, Arabic language and history books in our schools in Egypt. So reference to exiled Egyptians was always very dramatic. I mean, you will of course remember sort of having 20th century history of Egypt uh, and the reference to Mahmoud Samuel Baroudi, end of the 19th and beginning of the 20th century, exiled to the island, as we used to say in Egypt, Sarandib, which is today Sri Lanka. Yeah. And it was very dramatic. And I never, for, 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 I actually never forgot the paragraph in the history book wow. with a reference to Mahmoud Samuel Baroudi and the very famous poem he wrote. Uh, in love for Egypt from afar. The reference later on to the 1919 heroes uh, who were exiled to Malta and came back and exiled again. And so very dramatic reference to exiled Egyptians, which I psychologically, I guess, continue to, 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 to reject. So it's, it's more about an emotional issue, not very substantive, as you can see. Definitely, definitely. And I, I uh, subscribe to that uh, emotion very much. And to do that, you renounced your German nationality. Right. So what made you come to this decision? And do you have any regrets about it? No, so, so, so I have no regrets. I have no regrets uh, whatsoever. I, 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 I believe that doing it back in 2011 to run, to be, to be eligible to run in the parliamentary elections of 2011, resulting in the creation of the People's Assembly 2012 was definitely the right measure to, uh, to take. Uh, we had back then Egyptian laws mandating that candidates for parliamentary seats have to, to be um, solely Egyptian. Double citizenship 
was legally banned. Uh, candidates with double citizenships uh, were not eligible to run. And as someone who was defending from a liberal perspective rule of law, I needed to be in, in a way consistent to what I was preaching. Uh, I would have um, hated to, to do any sort of um, arrangement which wouldn't have meant or resulted in renouncing the German citizenship. So I renounced it, not because I believe that um, dual citizenship hinders you in defending the cause and the national interests of your um, uh, country, of the one country you are running in for a mandate, for an office, but basically because that was a legal environment which existed back in Egypt in 2011 and 2012. I mean, that legal environment changed, as you, of course, are aware, and the current laws pertaining to candidacy for um, the Egyptian parliament with its two chambers, House of Representatives and the Senate, no longer mandates uh, no dual citizenship. It's accepted, but it was in accordance to uh, to the law that I, um, I took that measure. And I never regretted it because I actually, in general, I did not regret uh, shifting positions and uh, moving from academia and policy analysis into uh, being a practitioner of politics for some time, I, I was defending ideals which I believed in. And um, it's quite consequential that when you defend, defend ideals you believe in, in, in a place which is transitioning or was attempting to transition to democracy, that you, you might end up having uh, some losses which happened to me, but in, in the wider perspective, when you extend your prism and see what has been happening in Egypt overall and what has been happening elsewhere in the world, it's, it's only uh, sort of, it was to expect it. So I, 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 I do not feel any regrets for uh, doing what I did in the sense of practicing politics. Can you tell us more about your experience as a parliament member during that time? Right. It was immediately after the revolution, and it yeah. was for just six months, right? Yes, yes. So I, I, I always joke with my friend that one, one of the legacies of um, being um, a practitioner of politics in a country attempting a transition, um, that you end up being a former member of so many councils and uh, so many assemblies very rapidly. So I was officially a former member of the Egyptian parliament, but I stayed in parliament only for such a brief tenure, not even six months, it was a bit less, five months and a half. I mean, is it, is it uh, legitimate to describe uh, me as a former parliamentarian? Probably, probably not, but it's, it's a fact of life. And I, after a year, I was appointed to the Council on Human Rights, the National Council on Human Rights, and a year later I became a former member of the National Council on Human Rights, which is one of the legacies of countries in transition that, I mean, you shift positions very quickly and councils and assemblies come into being and get dissolved. And so you are, you're, you're lost uh, between different former uh, quote-unquote titles. Now, my experience, um, I would say, I would, I would segment it in, 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 in different segments. Number one was um, uh, running for parliament, which was a great experience. You remember, Marlene, that um, the period between February, extending between February 2011 and uh, the parliamentary elections in vibrant energy in Egypt's public space, freedom of expression was uh, one of the top priorities for Egyptians in general, involvement in public affairs. It was a great, a great environment. Of course, positively, a great time for freedom of expression. Negatively, a huge time for polarization along the divide between Islamist forces and secular forces. And I did belong to the latter, to the secular forces. So 
However, I pretty much enjoyed uh, being a part of politics in Egypt back then and the campaign for running, my campaign to run for the People's Assembly was uh, very enjoyable. I uh, had the pleasure and the honor to work with so many volunteers, uh, young female and male Egyptians and mid-career female and male Egyptians who basically managed the campaign. And without their help, I have, would have never managed. And it was a truly uh, independent, uh, volunteer-based campaign. And I learned a lot about Egypt before the campaign and during the campaign, knowing the country, knowing how people um, said their preferences, talking to people. It was, it was an experiment in, 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 in a daily practice of politics, which I never had before and it did not uh, have after that uh, as well. So that first phase was very enjoyable, enlightening, educative. You can add uh, basically the fascination with waking up to a society which is really interested or was interested in public affairs, which we did not have before and did not have in the same manner uh, in the last years. The second, second phase was being in, in, in the People's Assembly. Mm -hmm. And that was a tough experience, of course, because we, I was part of a tiny minority, which was uh, representing um, liberal and leftist uh, parties and independents. I was elected um, an independent, and I was part of a tiny minority, around 20%, representing liberal and leftist political parties. You mentioned Egypt Social Democratic Party. The Free Egyptians was a second party represented in the Assembly uh, of 2012. El was represented, but basically over 65% of the seats were um, uh, captured by Islamists, by party that the Muslim Brotherhood established and by Salafi groups. So being in a tiny minority in a polarized environment was quite difficult. It was difficult because one, polarization basically hijacked our work at the People's Assembly. We ended up spending five and a half months without passing one sound legislation on social and economic matters, which uh, were more and continue to be more of interest for Egyptians. It was a, polar, a highly polarized space. And you remember, of course, scenes such as someone standing up, an MP standing up and uh, chanting uh, Azan, the prayers called. You remember the different legislative initiatives pushed forward by Salafi groups, primarily pertaining to uh, ma marriage or marrying uh, kids, legalizing the marriage of kids. I mean, qu quite shameful, in, in fact. It was a polarized space in the sense of cooperation was hard existent between across the ideological aisle between the Islamist parties and secular groups. Um, it was polarized as people have uh, or, or came to see it when the constituent assembly was elected, the constituent assembly that was tasked according to the constitution amendments of spring 2011, tasked to draft a new constitution for Egypt, a new democratically spirited constitution for Egypt. The constituent assembly number one to which I was elected was elected in a, in a manner that did not cross the ideological aisle. We were a tiny minority as opposed to an Islamist majority and domination. We resigned. The constituent uh, liberal, uh, mostly liberal um, uh, elected members resigned. The constituent assembly was um, uh, brought down by a ruling of the administrative court system. If you remember, then the constituent assembly number two was elected once again, reflecting exactly the same ending up in a disaster, which was the constitution of 20, 2012. 
so in a way, the second phase was um, uh, characterized by polarization, which no one, and I'm, I'm, I'm not putting the blame on anyone else, that was the environment in which we were all part of. And uh, I can always tell you that well, to my mind, I feel that Islamists, especially the Muslim Brotherhood, took it in the wrong direction. Instead of building consensus with liberal secular groups, they opted to, to, to lean more towards Salafis, and that was basically the end of it. Uh, and it was by design sort of a, a desire um, of Islamists to monopolize, to create a monopoly of, over Egyptian politics, and of course it failed. And so that was basically the second phase. The third phase is sort of retrospectively how I see it. I, I learned a lot. I mean, I, I, did, I did have five and a half months, that's it. But I learned a lot about using legislative uh, tools. I was trying. I was trying my best to be active. I was trying my best to um, stop some legislative initiatives which were quite problematic, such as an education legislation that was put forward by Salafi groups and backed by um, the Muslim Brothers, and it was a disaster uh, to my mind. In the sense of trying to to take whatever uh, pluralist content is out there in Egypt's education system. So I was quite terrified by it. I tried to stop it. We all were. Yeah, yeah. it was and, very and, scary. And, yes, well, it was very, very scary. And I was I was I was attempting to um, with fel fellow liberals trying to stop catastrophic um, uh, legislative initiatives pertaining to uh, minimizing uh, women's rights. I uh, put forward different legislative uh, initiatives pertaining to protection from harassment and increasing women's rights and gender equality. And it, they were all brought down in not even plain in the plenary session in the committees in which they were discussed due to the Islamist majority. But, but I have regrets as well. I do regret retrospectively that we did not pass a single sound economic and social measure in, in favor of Egyptians who did not simply only take to the street to demand democracy in, in, in broad terms, but they demanded improvement in their living conditions as well. And I regret that I, I, uh, I was part of um, uh, a legislation that passed and later was brought down by the Supreme Constitutional Court, which was designed to deprive uh, members of the former regime from their political rights. I believe I, I, wa I was in a way misled or carried away by wrong assessments. It was not liberally, liberally spirited. And so that is basically the mistake I made. And I apologize for it in public. And I said I misused my legislative uh, competencies. And I'm, I'm proud of having apologized in public for that. But it, retrospectively, um, uh, I, I believe, uh, Marlene, that if the People's Assembly uh, in its composition, 2012, would have existed a bit longer. Maybe it could have moved away from polarization and created incentives for cross-ideological cooperation. Uh, but it, it remains a hypothetical issue, which no one can really judge, because reality is it was dissolved uh, less than six months later. So, but, but that's basically about my role in Parliament, the road to it being in Parliament and retrospectively how I see it. As a minority in that parliament, as a liberal minority, why do you think, even theoretically, why do you think it would have come halfway, uh, well, to meet for, you halfway? Right, primarily for two reasons. One is more sort of uh, inspired by similar uh, experiences yeah. elsewhere, away from Egypt, that in, in many cases, polarization gets toned down or gets reduced when democratically elected assemblies become a reality, a daily feature of politics. 
So we had a great deal of polarization in, for example, Eastern European countries right after the shift from communist parties into more or less pluralist dynamics, 1989, 1990, 1991. So when you look at the composition of the assemblies uh, in most Eastern European countries, Poland is maybe a prime case, uh, a great deal of polarization between liberals and communists and fights uh, nonstop in a way that would remind you of the Islamist secular divide or secular Islamist divide in Egypt. And over, over, over time, it, it, it became toned down because once again, I mean, assemblies wake up after a while to say, well, fine. I mean, we do have constituencies. We're not catering to their interests. We're not doing any, any relevant work legislatively or in terms of oversight to benefit people socially and economically. And therefore, we really have to shift gears. That happened. So, so, so now the number one reason why I'm saying it, that maybe hypothetically it would have uh, became it would have become uh, less of a polarized place is related to uh, experiences elsewhere. Secondly, in, in Egypt itself, I believe that having a democratically sanctioned space would have enabled parties to sort of reconsider uh, how they how they are behaving politically and what the impact is. So, for example, Islamists, primarily the Muslim Brotherhood, leaned very quickly after February 2011 in a Salafi direction. They were afraid that Salafis might um, sort of hijack their constituencies. They were becoming more um, conservative, especially in their social uh, platform. In politics, they were primarily interested in cooperating with the Supreme Council of the Armed Forces and the Salafis did not really care a lot about uh, secular groups. But the reality is that they were losing in terms of public opinion trends. They were losing. People were waking up to, 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 to see Islamists uh, having uh, promised so much and having delivered zero. So, so it was sort of, I mean, it was, and, and here you have to factor in the history, long history of Islamist opposition. They were in opposition in different forms um, for a very long time. They promised anti-corruption campaigns. They promised uh, solid and efficient uh, government work. They promised transparency and did not deliver on any one of them. So they were losing and they were losing big in terms of popular uh, and public opinion trends. So that would have probably incentivized sort of a recalibration of where they uh, stood. And the same goes for liberal and leftist groups where we were very obsessed, we were primarily obsessed with constitutional debates and did not really turn our attention to social and economic manners uh, and matters. So in a, in, a, in, in a way, and social and economic policies, in a way probably with time, we would have recalibrated as well and focused more on what we can get, what can we do instead of Having, because polarization always means that I mean, you, you, you escalate. I mean, it's, 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 uh, it's a zero-sum game. It's uh, you win or they win. And if they win, you lose. And if you win, they lose. And so in a, in a way that does not go well in any democratically sanctioned space. So maybe if it would have stayed a, long, a longer time, it would have been less of a polarized place. Um, so it's, it's a speculation based on universal or international experiences away from Egypt. And it's a speculation based on what I saw in the five and a half months that all parties were losing. And that, that was basically sort of the continuity polarization which stayed after um, the assembly was dissolved and led us to the presidential elections and led us to the very problematic year of uh, uh, late uh, president, late former President Mohamed Morsi, and then basically to an end to our democratic experiment in 2013. Well, why do you think 
that after such a revolution and there were these democratic, for the first time, democratic elections, it, it sort of solidified the concept that if Egypt ever has, uh, or any Arab country ever has an attempt at democratic transition, that it will be Islamic. Right, I mean, it's, it's, uh, go ahead. So why, why do you think was it Islamic? Yeah, I mean, it's 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 a great question. So I, I, and and of course, I mean, you 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 made a, a smart reference to Egypt's uh, experience solidifying the impression of whenever you open up the Pandora's box of Arab politics, uh, if you open it up in an election-driven fashion, you will end up having Islamist majorities. And the reference, of course, goes back to two cases in the Middle East post, I have to take um, our viewers and our listeners back to post September 11, uh, 2001, uh, times in the Middle East, and then, of course, American invasion of Iraq and what followed the American invasion uh, in Iraq, and then the case of Palestine. So the two cases are Iraq and Palestine, where we did have between 2002 and 2005 and six elections in which basically religious-based parties won. So it was Hamas, which won in Palestine 2005, creating shockwaves that once you open it up, you open up the ballot box, even in the presence of a strong national independence movement with huge historical legitimacy like the PLO or Fatah. Um, so it, you will lose um, against Islamist parties. In Iraq- and Before 2011, there was the example of Algeria. Yes, but, but I mean Algeria is a different is a different historical context, and I guess it was not it was probably more present in the minds of European policymakers hmm. that the experience of Algeria in the, in in late eighties, beginning nine beginning of the nineties, when you opened up and then you ended up seeing an Islamist victory, mm -hmm. but then the process was hijacked and the civil war, a bloody civil war. As Algerians call it, al Ashraya Sauda, the black decade, right. uh, happened. But I, I, I would say what was more present in minds was Iraq, an American invasion leading to toppling down Saddam Hussein's regime and the creation of under invasion, of course, and under catastrophic conditions, but a bit of pluralist dynamics leading to victories of religious-based parties on all sides, especially okay. Shia, of course, as well as Sunni uh, parties. Okay. And then later on, Palestine, 2005, elections in which Hamas won. Quite simultaneously, Egypt's election, parliamentary elections, 2005, in which the Muslim Brotherhood, back then a banned organization, uh, ran independent candidates and won almost 20% of um, of the electorate uh, and of the seats of the People's Assembly. And if you extend your lens a bit to North Africa, you will see Islamists gaining in Morocco uh, as well. So in a way, yes, I mean, you had an, a, a quite sort of a solid expectation uh, before 2011. That if you open up, it seems, it seemed that religious-based parties will always score better than secular parties. And, and of course, we had our ex explanatory frameworks for that. One, um, religious-based parties were using their social capital that they have managed to generate in their charity networks, in their different attempts to 
to, to, to reach out to constituencies away from politics, that they had social capital, which liberal and leftist groups did not have. They were out there doing relief work, doing charity work, creating social right. capital that can be easily translated into political weight uh, via the ballot box. So that was the explanatory framework number one. A second explanatory framework was basically, well, it seems that religion uh, resonates more uh, with Arab majorities, that citizens tend to believe candidates and parties which come across having religious-based platforms and talking about khalallah wa khala rasul, so as we say. And a third explanatory framework was related to religion, but in the sense of Islamists using religious sanctioned spaces, mosques, whatever, to do politics. Whereas liberal and leftist groups, due to the existence of uh, authoritarian governments in the region, did not have any parallel spaces. I mean, Islamists could penetrate mosques, but liberals and leftists could penetrate what? Maybe trade unions, professional associations, but they faced the government very uh, rapidly and they faced even Islamists. Mm -hmm. And the fourth explanatory framework will take me back to trade unions and professional associations. And it's basically not only a reflection on Egypt, but Islamists were in a way in different places in, in Palestine and in Egypt and in, in Morocco, quite good at sort of playing politics within the parameters of the framework. So if the regime, respective regime would leave a space uh, to contest a bit of the okay, trade unions or professional associations, they would go in and contest. Liberals and leftists were quite shy to do that and were quite more preoccupied with setting uh, the right framework, sort of macro politics, where I, whereas Islamists were uh, sort of practitioners of micro politics. Let's go in and, 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 and contest. So they had huge election machineries uh, out there in existence. And so, so we had like four explanatory frameworks for that expectation of if you open, up, if you open it up, Islamists would win. And then 2011 comes uh, in Tunisia and Egypt, I'm leaving aside Syria, Libya, Yemen, uh, Bahrain, the other cases which Bahrain was um, came to an end uh, quickly, the other cases were pushed in the direction of civil wars and uh, instability. But in Tunisia and Egypt, once you opened up politics, you saw Islamist dominance. I mean, you remember the constitution amendments in Egypt in the spring of 2011 and Islamists winning uh, for, for, for the yes vote of almost like 80, 78%, 78, around 78%. In Tunisia, Al-Nahda movement was scoring big as well in whatever contestation was happening. So okay. yes, so it, for, for different reasons, uh, liberal and leftist parties were weak, did not have stable constituencies, and no one should have expected stable constituencies for liberal and leftist parties because they were banned, practically banned and pushed aside for a very long time. So we were trying to sort of figure out ways of reaching out, how to do proper outreach activities, how to create our constituencies, how to create a platform, an election platform, whereas Islamists hit the ground running because they had the four reasons I just outlined to assist them. So, and, and what happened was failure after failure of secular parties. So you lost the constitutional, the referendum on constitutional amendments, which was styled by Islamists as Ghazwat uh, al-Sanadi, as a yes for religion. Uh, and um, uh, and if you say no, you're uh, not uh, Muslim. And then sort of the polarization, which followed that, the parliamentary elections and what was lost was um, uh, basically any attempt to sort of uh, tone it down and recalibrate politics to become less uh, about polarization and more about what can we do to help Egyptians who demanded democracy and social justice and improvement of their economic and social conditions gain some of the benefits of the change. And you ended up not delivering and 
in, in retrospect, I would say that what Egyptians uh, did in 2013 was quite legitimate. I mean, they had lost hope in the democratic experiment. They did not cater to their needs and their uh, interests and their demands and their dreams. And so they basically said, well, no, we, we would rather go back to what we had before 2011. We want a strong man. And that's basically more or less what happened. So you were a member of the Human Rights Council, the National Human Rights Council, which was formed. It was formed in the spring of 2011. So the new formation of the National Council on Human Rights yeah. ha must have happened between um, uh, February and March of 2011. And I remember that back then we had a cabinet in place. Of course, the Supreme uh, Council of the Armed Forces was the chief executive power in Egypt after former President Mubarak resigned. And then we had a cabinet which was led by former Prime Minister Ahmed Shafiq. Right. One of his vice uh, ministers or vice prime minister and minister was uh, Dr. Yahya Gamal, who was tasked to form um, yes. the National Council on Human Rights NU. So, and I was uh, one member, a member of the new formation, which came into being in spring 2011 okay. and stayed for a year. Okay. Um, so, so this, of course, is viewed by a lot of people as an attempt by, um, by the regime at the time to co-opt the human rights movement and the human right. rights even terminology and undermine human rights organizations. Right. So what, what is your opinion about this National Council? Right. So, so retrospectively, of course, I, 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 I agree and I agree to, to, to a great extent. Well, I mean, as you know, Marlene, the creation of national councils on human rights became quite fashionable in uh, undemocratic countries after September 11, 2001. Back then, the Bush administration uh, had democracy promotion as priority in its uh, foreign policy, especially toward the Middle East. And a link was made between promoting democracy the way they understood it, of course, <laughs> because the invasion of Iraq was everything but a promotion of democracy. But anyhow, I mean, it's, it's how they understood it. And they made a link between promoting democracy and sort of diminishing uh, Islamist uh, radicalism, militant jihadism, and so on and so forth. Right. And so in, a, in, in, in that context, uh, to an extent, Arab governments were um, pushed to create national councils on human rights. By the way, you will find national councils on human rights in the most odd of places in the region. I mean, you have a national council on human rights in Saudi Arabia. Exactly. You have a national council on human rights in uh, Bahrain. You have a national council, regardless of the exact terminology, in the United Arab Emirates, in Algeria, in I'm not sure about Libya under uh, late Qazafi, whether they had a National Council on Human Rights or not, but you, you had sort of national, and in Sudan under Bashir, I mean, and, and he was implicated in uh, human rights, uh, in atrocities. International. Uh, in, yeah. in, in, mass, in mass killing in Darfur and elsewhere. But anyhow, so governments were pushed to create national councils on human rights to do two things. Number one, to re to re-own the discourse on human rights, which emerged in the region. In fact, if you, and of course you know that, 
um, post-1967, I mean, the creation of the modern discourse on human rights in the Arab world really dates back to post-1967, where segments, considerable segments of Arab populations were saying, well, it seems that one man shows, one man rule is not doing it. I mean, let's see what else can be done. And so Arabs in general, or at least in the Arab intelligentsia, became attentive to human rights. And then you have the 1970s where human rights debates begin, and then the 1980s creation of NGOs, non-governmental organizations. And, and then in the 1990s, governments were trying to own and, and control that space using, of course, repression, control and containment, and creating the phenomenon of governmental, non-governmental organizations, gongos, which was very big in countries such as Tunisia and Jordan, and, and sort of, OK, fine. So we have the human rights organizations uh, led by dignitaries of the royal family, uh, from the royal family in Jordan, or led by uh, former officials in Tunisia and elsewhere. The National Council was but a new attempt to re-own, repossess, and control that space by governmentalizing it, uh, governmentalizing the discourse on human rights. And that was the creation of the National Council in Egypt. The second purpose why National Councils were created was to basically put forward that image of reform-oriented governments which are um, taking uh, democracy and human rights um, uh, issues seriously. Exactly. Yeah. Now, 2011 comes, the National Council's uh, old formation uh, gets dissolved, a new formation happens, I get called on to participate and I accept. I accept um, uh, having two issues in mind, which I would like to outline very clearly to, uh, to our listeners and viewers. Number one, so the, the, the environment in Egypt was quite inspiring in the sense of people were becoming more attentive to democracy relevant issues and to human rights and freedoms and I felt that maybe a national council, in spite of all its limits, can move um, uh, in coordination with non-governmental organizations to prioritize human rights. And if you remember, Marlene, we quickly had issues. I mean, right after February 11, 2011, we had um, a sectarian violence in different right. places in Egypt, in Atfiyah, uh, in Giza, right. in uh, Upper Egypt, different cases, in Mbaba, in technically geographically Giza, if I'm not mistaken. Mm -hmm. But anyhow, so we had cases uh, of sectarian violence uh, unfolding right away. We had um, cases of um, uh, citizens, uh, Egyptians who um, took to the streets in, in, in the January revolution and continued to take to the streets after February 11, 2011 and faced police brutality in different ways. So my, my first um, uh, incentive was an impression and an incentive that we can cooperate with non-governmental organizations and some of their representatives were in the formation to make human rights a priority in transitional times. And, and the second assumption which I had was that you, you can sort of get the National Council to move beyond its legacy of being a pro-government, a state-serving council since we did not have a clear uh, ruling establishment in place. We were in transition. There were too many actors, uh, retrospectively, I say too many, but um, so back then I said a variety of actors in the scene in Egypt, and we did not have, I did not expect sort of a government stronghold over the council. I expected that the diversity of actors would create some room of maneuvering for the council. That was why I went in. We stayed in the in the national. I stayed in the national council for a year until the national council got dissolved by uh, late uh, elect by late former president Mohamed Morsi after uh, his election. 
and retrospectively, um, and in spite of the fact that the council worked uh, and had missions pertaining to uh, investigations of sectarian incidents of sectarian violence and incidents of police brutality, I would say that my two assumptions were based on a wrong appreciation of facts. I was too optimistic. Uh, in fact, number one, in, term, in the sense of prioritizing human rights did not happen. What happened was that the council was used in different ways by the executive branch of government to uh, put a good face on human rights uh, violations, on, on violations which were happening uh, on the ground to the extent that, in fact, the human rights situation in Egypt post-2011 was worse than before 2011. So the discrepancy was appalling that, well, how can a democratic uh, uprising lead to, to the worsening of human rights, not to an improvement in human rights? And I believe the council was used in that sense, not, did not incentivize human rights for the executive branch of government and did not incentivize cooperation between itself and non-governmental organizations, but was basically a tool that was used by the government. And there were limits on what we could publish, which was imposed by, um, which were imposed by the government. So the first assumption on incentivizing and making uh, human rights a priority um, in, a, in a very clear manner. So retrospectively, I probably did not, not probably, I did not take the right decision by accepting to be um, uh, part of the council with all um, sort of respect to everyone else who is still in the council now or back in the council and has a different assessment on, on the experience. Um, I, I believe I did not cater much in, in that year, better safeguarding, right? Would you consider the revolution of 2011 a failure? No, 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 no. So, so, so not only because um, what you, of course, are aware of, sort of the very legitimate take on revolutions, pushing forward the notion of we're looking at long-term social, economic, and political uh, transformation that cannot be judged and should not be judged after two years, uh, after 10 years. I'm sorry, not only because I'm taking sort of the discourse in political science in, in, in seriously on revolutions that should not be evaluated a decade later, uh, and the discourse in political science on revolutions that lead to massive transformations, but not linear, never linear, that you do have setbacks, you have backsliding. I mean, we have a huge literature in political science on democratic backsliding. You have a democratic uprising, you open up the Pandora's box of politics, and then you start backsliding. It happened elsewhere, most prominently in Russia. It happened in different uh, countries. It happened in Egypt as well. So, but not only for, for the two reasons I'm, 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 I'm sharing based on political science literature on revolutions being long-term processes, transformation uh, processes, which should not be evaluated uh, only after a decade. We have to wait and see uh, what happens. And secondly, not only because uh, democratic backsliding is part of the deal, when you democratize or open up or attempt to, de to, to democratize, it does not mean that you will have a linear progress. It's never linear. You have setbacks and sometimes you have a total uh, switch, uh, which, which happened in Egypt in a way uh, between 2011, 2013, a very problematic democratic transformation. Um, and then leading into re-establishing uh, authoritarian governance in Egypt starting 2013. Not that authoritarian government disappeared in the, two, in the, in the three years, it did not. Uh, but we, we were engaged in an experiment of sorts, which ended that. So not, not, not for, for the two reasons only, but for a set of reasons, uh, which I would like to, to, to share. 
Number one, I, I, I believe 2011 did not come into being without a history of uh, opposition and popular mobilization for democratic demands. So sometimes we're, 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 we're uh, taken uh, by sort of generalizations that which are primarily Western produced, not uh, Arab produced uh, in academia. Um, by generalization such as, well, the region woke up to the uh, Jasmine Revolution in Tunisia and demands for democracy began in 2011. No, it did not. I mean, we, had, we had very strong um, um, waves of mobilization for democratic demands in Egypt, in Tunisia, in Morocco, in Jordan, since the 1970s. I mean, people right. forget the 1977 uh, January uprising in Egypt, which was driven by social and economic uh, demands, but was democratically spirited. People were demanding a responsive government, which is a democratic demand. Later on, 1980s in Jordan, in Tunisia, and Morocco, creating sort of an environment in the three countries for semi-liberal experiments. Uh, a bit not not power sharing, but a bit of liberal um, uh, dynamics. So now, and and then in Egypt, starting 2005. Uh, and even before, all the way to 2011, uh, the creation of the Kifaya movement, the creation of April 6 uh, movement, young uh, networks of young activists uh, demanding democracy, demanding a responsive government, um, the National uh, Assembly for Change, so Egypt did not wake up in 2011 in January to demand democracy. Mm -hmm. Egyptians were demanding democracy before, and that, that demand had a long history, uh, was uh, upset, in, in 2011, 2012, 2013, to the extent that the same Egyptians took to the street once again, demanding a strong man back in, in leadership. But as I said, I mean, it was to a great extent related to mistakes which policy um, uh, uh, practitioners and political parties committed. Once again, if you, Marlene, if you do not cater to people's needs, do not expect them to be um, uh, in acceptance to what you do. If you spend your time the debating uh, constitution, and do not cater to social and economic needs. If people see their security situations, their social and economic situation deteriorating, they will definitely demand a change, no matter in which direction. So, so, so what I am saying is, Egypt did have a history of demanding democracy. Its citizens demanding democracy before 2011, and that. Uh, history continues to be compelling, and even if the demand for democracy is not apparent right now, it continues to ring bells in people's ear. Um, we need a responsive government. We need a transparent government. We need uh, a, a campaigns to fight corruption. We would like to see uh, human rights and freedoms, personal freedoms respected. But sometimes citizens make sort of uh, give and take um, uh, assessments in a very rational fashion. So when you compare the situation social, socially and economically now in Egypt 2021, in spite of pandemic times to the situation socially and economically in 2011, 2012, 2013, you see improvement which citizens are seeing and are consciously saying, well, we would like to see more of social and economic improvement and we are putting democracy demands in the backseat. That does not mean that democracy demands have disappeared or will continue to disappear. We have social and economic improvements and citizens are responding rationally to that. Of course, they fear repression as well because we have a rep uh, repressive tools in place, but it's not only about fearing repression. Because in the, and I'm even away from Egypt, in the crudest repressive environments, you have, I mean, look at uh, Hong Kong, for example, in the last years, Ukraine in the last years and elsewhere. I mean, citizens can, can take to the streets and demand change. 
So number one, democracy was not invented in 2011 and did not disappear after 2013. So secondly, now January 2011 had a set of demands which really made it more, more, more clear to Egyptians that we need responsive governments. And I guess this continues to be a true feature of Egyptian um, uh, public debates up until now. I mean, look at what we were discussing today, again, the background in Egypt of a growing clash between Egypt and Ethiopia, Egypt, Sudan on the one side and Ethiopia on the other side regarding the Nile and the Renaissance Dam. And, and if you monitor what people say on social media and elsewhere, they would like their government to listen to what they are saying. So the demand for responsive governments continues to be part of what we're looking at. And it's a, it's a January, before January and January legacy that we can, um, but most significantly, and here I'm bringing in demographics, 60% of our citizens in Egypt are under the age of 25. So they were, the, the 60% was 10 years of age or younger in 2011. And their political awareness uh, is being shaped by memories of January, of course, by facts on the ground now, but is being shaped by the pluralist environment which they find in spite of repressive measures. Uh, social media, no matter how tight you control public spaces, you're bound to hear alternative views. You're bound to hear alternative takes. You're bound to hear and see your citizens exposed to opposing uh, views and opposing um, uh, platforms. And that will ultimately incentivize um, a democratic reform. Number four, I, I, I believe the revolution and its, its demands, I, I believe the revolution and its uh, demands for social justice, for dignity, for um, democracy continues to, the revolution continues to shape the imagination of many Egyptian citizens. They realize that we did not come to where we would have loved to see Egypt. We realize as well that maybe we were moving or we moved away because of the deterioration in social and economic and security conditions was too much to tolerate. The failures of Islamist and secular political actors were too much to accept and tolerate. Um, the threatening disintegration of state institutions was too much for us to accept. But they realize that in essence, the demand for um, a responsive government, a transparent government for respect of human rights and freedoms is in essence not wrong. It's what we should aspire to. Um, when it comes back, it will come back maybe in a way to incentivize the government to introduce democratic reforms or to do a bit of not power sharing, but at least to, to let some pluralist dynamics exist, even, even um, in, in the sense of restoring back what we had before 2011, that bit of pluralism in the public space and in the media. So I'm saying, no, it's too early to judge. And Egypt is not a static society. It's a vibrant society. It's a young and vibrant society. And if you leave politics aside, Marlene, and, and I, I would like to mention the fact that outside politics, you really see a, diff, a society which is full of energy and vibrant energy and pluralist um, accents are being put forward in, uh, in music, in arts, uh, elsewhere. So ultimately, politics is anachronistic. Uh, political dynamics are anachronistic as of now when you compare them to the social fabric and its nature. And they are bound to be um, in line someday, somehow. I'm not sure how, and I, I bet on the government in Egypt 
sort of reforming gradually, especially if you do not have uh, any threats domestically. The environment regionally is quite threatening due to the Nile issue, but, but, but overall, I, I bet on, on, on the government after some time sort of moving in, an, in a, not in an opposite direction, but at least in a different direction, in the sense of creating some space to inject societal energy into politics. It cannot be that anachronistic for a long time. As always, an optimistic view. This, when I asked you once before uh, about, and we talked about the economy a little bit, and although I'm not an economist, you actually mentioned that the economy, well, poverty is a, a lot less now. It was 32%, now it is 29%. Or yes, yes, it's not a lot less, but there is some improvement. It is, it is an improvement for sure. Yes. Mm-hmm. Um, although I'm not an economist, right. uh, I was thinking about this actually since we spoke last time because, because of the levels of poverty that I'm seeing and I'm kind of not quite believing the statistic. But when I looked a little bit further into it, I can see that difference is there not because people's people's lives have improved. It's really a difference that has been, um, that measures up to the criteria and the World Bank. So things like um, reducing the budget deficit, adjusting the balance of payments, ensuring exchange rate stability, all of these things are not really affecting the general poverty situation of Egypt. It shows it in a good light uh, because there is an improvement, but it has no impact on regular life. I think it is detrimental to any future improvements. So I, I, I do not subscribe to the opinion uh, you just expressed, Marlene. Okay. So um, the poverty line and the percentage, the poverty rate in Egypt, as in everywhere else, is being measured based on a set of benchmarks that have been put forward by um, uh, international monetary institutions and by the UN uh, relevant councils and so on and so forth. Now, the poverty line based on the same benchmarking was 34%, 35%, 36%. Uh, until 2015 and 16, and then it started to decline using the same benchmarks. Mm -hmm. So no matter how you see it, um, you have a decline of five points uh, down to around 29, 29.5.6% based on the statistics released by international monetary um, uh, institutions, as well as by the Egyptian government. And the statistics are um, uh, corresponding to each other in, in a manner which does not lead me to doubt what CAPMAS um, uh, uh, in Egypt is releasing in terms of statistics. Mm-hmm. So, so, so you can always argue, and it's very legitimate, which I did say in our Arab, uh, Arabic language conversation, that I mean, this is an improvement in macro indicators. Mm-hmm. The two big improvements are which pertain to people's lives away from other improvements such as adjustment of the payment balance and what have you, and devaluation, not devaluation, liberation of the exchange rate and um, a set of of macro indicators. The most 
two relevant indicators for people's lives are unemployment and poverty rates. Mm -hmm. Unemployment in Egypt was over 15, 16%. It's now around 8%. Um, uh, does it reflect an improvement in people's uh, living conditions? Yes. Poverty rate, to my mind. Uh, not only to my mind, I would say, I mean, it's it's um, uh, the only way you can see it, because if unemployment, of course, we have disguised unemployment and we do, we have an informal economy and we don't know how many exactly are employed or unemployed. But based on the statistics for whatever is being measured, you have an improvement, uh, an employment rate going down from over 15 percent to around 8 percent. Then you have an improvement of the poverty rate going down from over 33, 34 percent to 29 percent. Does it reflect an improvement? Yes. Does it reflect an end of Egyptian uh, social and economic crisis? Of course not. I mean, you still have one third of the population clo living close to the poverty or below the poverty line. Is everyone else doing better if not in poverty? Of course not. We have a suffering middle class, a shrinking and suffering middle class. Egypt is a country with protracted, protracted social and economic crises. Now, what is important to see is what kind of trends do we have? We have worrying trends and we have positive trends. The, the most worrying trend is deficit and debt mm -hmm. domestically and internationally right and that the increased most, yeah and that increased the most significant positive trend is the reduction of poverty the reduction of unemployment and the economic growth rate the annual economic growth rate measured mm -hmm. by the gdp you have since 2014 over five percent between five and six percent and in, in 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 a couple of years it was e even over six percent so economic growth rates are high, and that should not be denied. And to my mind, saying that there, there is some positive uh, improvement socially and economically should not mislead the listeners in the sense of expecting that an end to social and economic crises, but it should also not lead anyone to deny the improvements on the ground. Because once again, I mean, we do have sort of a, uh, of a, of a clear benchmarking before and after. And when you put the numbers uh, together, you can always get out of numbers and say, well, but I, I do not believe that that it, it's very relevant. It, probably not, but for some people it is. Mm -hmm. And as long as you're neutralizing sort of the benchmarking, keeping it as is, uh, no, I see a positive trend and it's uh, it should not be used to deny the existence of protracted crises. And it should not be um, uh, misleading in the sense of us as sort of opponents of the government on human rights issues, denying social and economic improvements on the ground. There are, I mean, there is a removal of subsidies. There is about 6 million people were added to the, the, the poverty line. No, so no, that's not true. No one, no, no, no. If you, if you have 6 million people being added to the poverty line, you wouldn't see an improvement, a decline in the rate. No, that's that removal of the subsidies is an issue that and is being measured in, 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 right. in how, you, how, you, how you benchmark the poverty line. You have an, an, a definition based on how many in US dollars, how, how, how many uh, US dollars you have for a family on an average day. And then you measure the poverty line based on that, and you say below the poverty line or above the poverty line. And the percentage in Egypt factoring in all elements, including subsidies and changes in subsidies, was close to 35%. Now it's under 30%. Okay, good. That's, uh, that's, uh, that's more reason for um, optimism, I guess. Okay, the future.
What can we expect? A peaceful transition of power at some point? Are we stuck with an authoritarian regime for the rest of time? Or what is happening? What is the future? Yeah, I mean, it's, it's, I'm, I'm, I, I, can, I cannot really sort of put forward any um, uh, expectation for what will happen beyond outlining trends, which, which I see on the ground. So I see, I see in action a popular authoritarian government whose po popularity um, uh, has come into being, again, the background of the difficulties of the transition years whose popularity has come into being, again, the background of social and economic improvements, uh, whose popularity has come into being, um, uh, again, the background of using nationalist and religious inspi religiously inspired narratives. You have a mi mixture of elements contributing to the popularity of the Kant authoritarian government in Egypt. And it's not, it's not, it's not an, anom an anomaly. Uh, you have authoritarian governments, popular authoritarian governments in, in, in other places as well. And sometimes it happens that authoritarian leaders do gain popularity based on what preceded them and based on their um, uh, social and economic uh, policies. Uh, you have a popular authoritarian government in Russia, and that does not mean that it, it does not commit at, uh, human rights violations every day. And, and the same goes for, uh, for Egypt. So we have a popular authoritarian government, which does not claim to be a democratic uh, government. So yeah. it's not part of the discourse. They do not claim to be a democracy, and we, which is factually right. Uh, secondly, so we have, we have a popular authoritarian government, one. Secondly, we have um, uh, an opposition spectrum hardly in existence. We do not have alternatives. We have very weak liberal and leftist uh, movements. We have mispopular mistrust in political parties as, um, as much as the government has been gaining in trust, according to um, uh, surveys conducted by the Arab Barometer, which we talked about in the Arabic version of the podcast, uh, which is a Princeton University project, as much as the government has been gaining in trust, political parties have been losing interest. So we have, we have a very weak opposition spectrum, which is hardly in existence, which is hardly active because it lacks mistrust and uh, because the authoritarian government has closed off politics. I mean, you don't have formal pluralist dynamics in politics. You have a one, right. one narrative, one line, one, uh, one movement, yeah. even if, if the hats are different. I mean, no matter how many uh, political parties exist officially in, in the assemblies, in the legislative assemblies, it's basically all about one line. So thirdly, on the ground as well, you have a young population, which is vibrant outside of politics, and that is, and, and you have a disconnect between stagnant, uh, anachronistic formal politics, and a vibrant society which is full of um, different trends and tendencies, and vibrant and pluralist and young Egyptians uh, being the dominant majority, around sixty percent. Number four, you have an international regional environment which is not interested in seeing Egypt democratized. I mean, it's more interested in stability. It's more interested in Egypt staying stable in a very difficult region. And we have a regional environment which is creating threats for Egypt that are being looked at very seriously by the population, be it right after 2013, the situation in Sinai and, and terrorist attacks which were on the rise and started to decline in the last four years. If you look at the numbers once again, uh, threats from the West uh, in Libya, and of course, now the existential threat being 
the dam represented by the dam by the renaissance dam mm-hmm. so it's a it's a regional and international environment which in in moments of threats in moments of challenges to national security core concerns does not incentivize uh, political change or political reform. We, number five, have a trend, which I outlined in our Arabic language podcast as well, on sort of new power sharing or beginnings of power sharing within the executive branch of government between military and security power centers and civilian power centers around the prime minister and different female ministers who have been leading the government efforts in pandemic times. That does not mean any power sharing between the government or the executive branch of government or anyone outside it. It remains within the executive branch of government, a bit of power sharing, very similar to what we had in Egypt before 2011. Number six, we have a public space which is sealed off. I mean, once it's not only in formal politics that we have one line, one narrative, one opinion, it's in the public space as well. Uh, social media in the in the formal public space. So in, in uh, TV uh, channels, right. in print media. However, you do have a, a parallel public space which has come into being and was very effective in 2011. And after 2011, it remains effective, a very popular public space and a vibrant public space, which is related to social media networks. I mean, look at Clubhouse and how many Egyptians are participating and yeah. for that matter, how many Saudis. And so you do have some dynamic. Let me add a seventh strand, which is you do not have domestic in relation to fact number two, that the opposition is weak and does not represent a threat. You have a popular authoritarian government which is not really facing domestic threats. I mean, no one is really sort of contesting it. Apparently it's not. And even if you look at what's being said right now by nominally opposition groups on the dam, they are saying, well, we are in support of the government. We are backing you. And you don't have meaningful or significant uh, domestic threats. So, and, and, and then based on the different facts, I mean, you can sort of take it, it, probably in one of two directions, an optimistic and a less optimistic direction. And an optimistic direction would be that the government will start um, uh, sort of realizing that since there are no threats, since um, they are scoring well in terms of social and economic improvements, and of course there are difficulties and uh, the uh, depth of of Egypt is uh, very worrying, how much you can continue to drive economic growth based on one sector, which is a construction sector is quite debatable as well but anyhow so they can start they might start realizing that there is not a great deal of domestic threats that we can open up slightly uh, beyond that beginnings beyond the beginnings of power sharing within the cabinet itself that they can start opening up creating uh, margins for an alternative opinion for an alternative narrative for some uh, pluralist dynamics in formal politics and in the pub in the formal public space that optimistic trend would be basically a return to pre-2011 uh, times which is the irony of uh, what we're looking at it would be a, a, a return to pre-2011 times and um, gradually and so and i'm looking only at the coming years that is sort of the more optimistic direction a return to pre-2011 times in the context of uh, sustained improvement in social and economic uh, conditions and living conditions of uh, of Egyptians. Not uh, big jumps are expected, but a gradual improvement similar to what has been happening in recent uh, recent, uh, years. The less optimistic direction is that the government due to the international and regional environment due to threats, existential threats to national security core concerns, 
will basically continue its very tight control over formal politics and formal public spaces, driving out, continuing to driving out opposition groups, uh, non-governmental organizations, human rights organizations, and continuing to preside over uh, human rights violations as it's been the case in, in, in recent years. So to my mind, we are looking at one, one, one possibility uh, out of two, and I, I cannot really expect what will happen. I will just continue to monitor as I have been monitoring uh, in the last years and will continue to identify even minor shifts because the one shift I'm telling you about regarding power sharing within the executive branch of government is a minor shift, but it's a minor shift that can be meaningful over time when civilian ministries become more relevant, it might create different dynamics. Civilian ministries always have a different um, mode of thinking, mode of thinking, mode of operation than military and security driven um, uh, power centers. Of course. So, 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 so monitoring the minor shifts and then seeing where they will take us is basically the job of, yeah, political scientists, observers, um, and and then it remains to be seen. Of course, I'm hoping for a uh, for for uh, positive changes, but I'm not sure what will happen. Dr. Hamzawi professor of political science at Stanford University. Thank you very much. Thank you, Marlene. It was a pleasure to, uh, to join you.